Before we begin, this podcast is brought to you by the generosity of my Patreon supporters. If you enjoy the content and can spare something to contribute to the cost of running the podcast, you can become a supporter or make a one-off tip via the links in the description. Every penny gets reinvested into improving the content of the show. I love putting these episodes together for you, but production comes with costs attached to it, and if I'm going to grow this and take it to the next level, I do need your help. If you can't contribute or aren't keen, I totally understand, but for those who can and are inclined, you know how grateful I am. Either way, remember to drop a like and leave a review, and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to The Napoleonicist. Today we're going to have another one of those group discussions which have proved so popular as we look at the greatest novel of the or, or about the Napoleonic era. Joining me are Napoleonicist regulars Marcus Cribb and Rachel Stark and two Napoleonicist newbies Gavin Lewis and Andy Young. Welcome all of you, great to have you on board. We're going to get straight down to business um, because people aren't tuning in for lengthy intros on my part. They're tuning in to hear you argue vociferously about why some books are great and others aren't. Just to head off um, a couple of, I'm reluctant to use the word complaints or whines, but you know what I'm getting at. Something in that vein from people already who've said, oh, but I like this book and it hasn't come up. There was a whole process before we whittled it down to these four. People had the chance to pitch their ideas. I took all of them forward to a Twitter vote and then people voted. There were, in fact, we voted twice to make sure that everybody got a fair listing, right? So no complaints, thank you. This is democracy in action. Napoleon would hate it because I deliberately haven't cooked the numbers in order to make certain book, uh, certain results look better. And the format is going to be the, the standard one that we do before. Folks have got uh, five minutes to make their pitch, followed by questions from me and then the other contenders. Be nice with your questions. Don't sort of call people idiots for liking things like, I don't know, Sharps Trafalgar, for example, <laughs> Marcus. Um, but we'll, we'll get on to that later. I want to throw it straight open to Rachel. Okay, thank you. Um, I'm pitching for the Aubrey Maturin series by Patrick O'Brien. But fair play, I actually like, really like all of the books we're discussing tonight and obviously what makes a great book is really subjective so it's going to be a really interesting discussion but the reason I've gone for Aubrey Maturin is um, one of the things I think really in its favour compared particularly to maybe to like a sharp and horn blur is I think the sense of the period is absolutely exquisite and a lot of historical fiction reads essentially like a modern novel that happens to be set in the Napoleonic Wars. Patrick O'Brien writes like it's the early 1800s and that's reflected in the dialogue and the idioms of speech that they use and the way things are described. Also through really subtle little piece of evidence like the way that surnames are spelt. Um, you know, something that wouldn't really even necessarily be picked up but that's how much attention he pays to the detail. Uh, the dialogue is so spot on for the period as well. It's, it's not inconceivable that Jack and Stephen could walk out of a book and walk into a Jane Austen book and sit down and have a conversation with Captain Wentworth and Captain Harville. And it would feel so natural because he's got that sense of period so spot on. Um, and another reason I really like them is that, and I'm gonna go book nerdy here, but there's a total subversion of 
common um, fictional tropes. So usually when you've got a hero, you've got awkward, slightly misfitted hero that stands out for some reason, and you give them a more cheerful, upbeat, garrulous sidekick to balance them out. So by those laws of fiction, Jack should be the sort of maverick hero that doesn't play by the rules and doesn't work well with others. And then Stephen should be the cheerful, scholarly, gentlemanly type, which isn't what it is at all. Jack's, you know, super sincere, very much about you know, the honour of the service and he likes things to be done appropriately. And Stephen, far from being this sort of, you know, squeamish scholar, is a laudanomatic, he's a polymath, he talks umpteen languages, possibly the only person who hates Napoleon more than Marcus, super anti-Bonapartist. Um, you know, he's an espionage agent, he doesn't scruple to get his hands dirty, he can fight dirty when he wants to. So it's really unique and it keeps you guessing, so it's never formulaic. You've got 21 books, but you can't really predict where things are going to go. So it's not fiction by numbers where this is the objective, here's how they're going to react and here's how the end game's going to be. It's really, really, you know, keeps you guessing and it's quite refreshing. Even though you've got the occasional year that seems to last for a decade, they manage to keep you on your toes. Um, the character development is really, really good, but not just because, not just for the two protagonists, but one of the things I think gives O'Brien the edge over quite a lot of other historical authors is he develops the supporting cast really, really well. So it's not just Jack and Stephen's um, story, although they're the central figures. Um, and they obviously come from relative positions of privilege, but you've got this sort of background cast. So you've got Killick and Bondin and Tom Pullings and Babington and Awkward Davis and Joe Place and so on, but it's their story as well. And you see them develop over the entire arc. So they don't just get sort of one strap line to sum up their personality. They've got this really great story that's taken through. So ultimately it's not just a story of the privileged classes, it's the kind of every man's story as well. Um, I would class Aubrey Maturin as literary fiction rather than genre fiction, so I think it kind of bridges the gap between Sharp and Hornblower and War and Peace, which I'm going to find really difficult to criticise because it is a majestic piece of literature. But like Tolstoy, it does like cover, you know, these big questions of humanity and philosophy and, you know, why should people react the way that they do and why do humans respond to things, but whereas Tolstoy narrates that O'Brien dramatizes it which I think is really clever and really engaging and you guys might disagree because I'm coming at this as a point of view of reading as a woman but I don't think male friendships generally speaking are explored in the same depth that female friendships are or quite often not not in the same way um, but you look at Jack and Stephen and they're two characters who you know are complete opposites in so many ways but complement each other perfectly and they just love each other to bits. And that's expressed, you know, the whole way through with real warmth and sincerity. And sometimes male friendships are looked at the way and again, this is just from my point of view, it seems to be super macho and kind of take the emotion out of it unless we're at a near death experience. But they're just quite open about how much they care about each other and how, um, you know, each adds and enhances the, the other's life. So I think that's really good as well. And, Lastly, I just think in terms of emotional impact, reading historical fiction, and that's primarily mostly what I read. Um, I've read few books in terms of 
emotional impact that could rival Patrick O'Brien. Um, I won't go into spoilers just in case somebody's listening who's yet to have the pleasure of reading the series, but if you have read it, I'll just say Dill absolutely shatters me every single time. And the series towards the, the moment towards the end of the series, where Jack is very much mimicking the trajectory of Cochrane and finds himself in a bit of a hard place in the stockade, where this super intimidating seaman, um, Awkward Davies, puts himself in front of Jack to stop the public having fun at his expense. And it's just constructed in such a way that it, it properly gets to the heartstrings. And I don't necessarily think a lot of fiction in that period has done that for me personally, but O'Brien manages it every time. Um, so that's more or less, I think, all the points. I had made little notes in case I wandered off on a trajectory. So I think that's kind of all the points I wanted to say. But oh, lastly, um, Patrick O'Brien writes women like they're real functioning human people and not just somebody for the hero to get as a reward, um, which, sorry, Bernard Cornwall, you definitely don't do. So yeah, reading it from a female point of view, my 13 year old self loved uh, all the short books and had zero complaints about them, but rereading them as an adult, I have a serious issue with how he writes women, whereas Patrick O'Brien writes them as actual people with feelings and motivations and, um, you know, emotions that exist outside their partner. So, yeah, that's how it edges it for me. Well played, Rachel. Um, there were emphatic nods all the way around the room um, <laughs> on that one. The, all the way through, but not just in relation to what you were saying about the portrayal of women in, in certain novels, which I completely agree with what you say on in that score. Before I actually come to my questions, I want to um, tap into something that you said about male friendships and the portrayal of male friendships and just see what the mood is around the room on that. Folks, what are your thoughts on, on whether Rachel's right in the sense that we tend not to see that that friendship kind of explored as deeply in other depictions. I was trying to think of something similar, um, but I think I think you're right to an extent. I mean, I have to confess, um, I haven't read uh, any of these these books. It's the only the only series that I haven't of all of these these options. Um, and perhaps, well, I, I did I did start one actually. Perhaps we can get into that <laughs> a little bit. But I, I agree to an extent. Um, and I wonder whether there's, because at the end of the day, I suppose, these two characters from what I gather and, and from watching the film, of course, which we've all watched, um, I think a lot of their, their friendship is based on love to an extent. Um, I think they, they, probably, they probably love each other in, in, a, in a platonic way, perhaps, or perhaps not. I mean, I don't know if there is any kind of homoerotic undertone, but I certainly, from what I gather, that isn't the case. Yeah, I think it is based on love and it doesn't kind of shy away from it. It doesn't remove the kind of emotional undertones. Because I know when you when you think of a lot of, I mean, I guess the, the biggest similarity, it's not Napoleonic relation, but is Holmes and Watson. And ultimately it's never kind of a partnership of equals because all the admiration and expressions on Watson's side and you only get these little sort of chinks in Sherlock Holmes's armor where he eventually says, you know, I very much value you etc as well but it's it's never quite on an equal footing and I guess it's the same with Sharp and Harper is that obviously there's regard there and Sharp names his son after Harper and it's it's a really strong friendship but it's always going to be one of superior and subordinate rather than a partnership of 
equal. So I do think it is love. Yeah, platonic love, definitely, but it, it is love. Yeah, it's a really interesting point that you make, isn't it? That there is a hierarchy. I was thinking of exactly those two examples as you were saying it and trying to work out um, if I could think of an equivalent. And as you say, Sharp and Harper, there's a hierarchy there. Officer, all right then, Sharp born to the, the lower echelon of society comes up in the ranks, but there is a hierarchy there. Ditto, there's an intellectual hierarchy between um, Holmes and, and Watson. So yeah, I, I think it's a really good point. Andy, what were your thoughts on this? So it, I, f I find it really interesting because you can see O'Brien has actually had to think this through because there is no, there is no chance in, in an ordinary naval career that you're going to have that foil by your side for 20 years. And in, in, in Matarin, Aubrey's got the perfect foil. He's got somebody who isn't under command, who, who can have that disagreement. Um, and, it, and so it's really interesting because I think you, you've, you've hit it spot on in the hierarchy. In every, single, in every single piece of fiction, there is a hierarchy when it comes to the military, and that is what comes through. And at some point, the, it's either the, the protagonist kicking upwards against those people or, or being supported from the bottom. Um, and I think just adding that foil brings out the the characters, as you say, their love for each other, and, and, and it's and it's a it's a true friendship. But it's a and this is my problem with it. It is completely false. There is just no chance in in history of that happening at sea. You, you are not going to get one surgeon who is able to follow a captain around in, in the way that happened. Yeah, and be an espionage agent and all that. I mean, yeah, yeah, definitely. It's obviously fiction, but it works as a re really well as a plot device as well because you get all the crew explaining all the naval terms to Stephen. So it works because it explains in layman's terms. So, I mean, I'm not, not well up in, in the Navy at all. I'm more interested in, you know, Napoleon and his marshals, that kind of element. So it's explained to you in a way that makes it really accessible and understandable, but then it doesn't feel patronizing. So it works really well as a literary device as well. But yeah, obviously it's never going to happen that you're going to get this sort of polymath spy slash surgeon slash natural philosopher who's going to manage to go all around the world with one captain. Marcus, what are your thoughts on this before I, I kind of steal the, the, the microphone back? Yeah, sure. Um, so it is one of those things. Uh, that there's the depth of the relationship and I think that's so important and it comes through much clearer in the books and in the film the film is very well done but in the books they have um, a really interesting relationship and there's certainly uh, multiple levels to it and you can really dive into those uh, more complicated um, feelings and the mutual respect but then also when they um, come to a head uh, and that's something that you don't find in in almost any other duo uh, from the dynamic duo of Batman and Robin all the way down there's always that hierarchy and um, Andrew I, you know I think he's a Royal Navy man and I think he's a schoolie I believe and you always have the different branches have their own rivalries and it's a really interesting choice to go for medical uh, because in that time they weren't they were wardroom status but they weren't officers uh, which is a really interesting commission that he can put him into the scenario without being Navy, because as you say, you, oh, lieutenants are going to promote out, they're going to move sideways, it's never going to work. And I think the relationship really works there. However, just picking up on something Rachel said a moment ago, and it's my only 
problem with the series that I've discovered is I find that you almost need some naval knowledge. Uh, it's very in-depth. And if I hadn't worked on HMS Warrior for two years and knew my port from a starboard, I would have been lost initially because the action comes thick and fast and it's brilliantly written. But I needed to know about up-roll, down-roll, which rope you pulled, and the fact ships don't have left and right, they don't have forward and back, they don't have maps. That terminology isn't explained gently. And in some other series, it's sometimes explained too much. For example, in Sharp, Bernard Cornwell will tell you about a Baker rifle in every single book and how it's loaded. But that doesn't mean you can pick up any book. And I would struggle for some people to find it very accessible. However, it is still very, very well written uh, and really an enjoyable series. I haven't read them all, I will admit, because there are so many and only so many hours in the day. But from what I've read, I've really enjoyed them. And that similarly was was my problem with them. Like I say, I began Master and Commander, I think I wrote, I think I read, sorry, maybe sort of 60, 70 pages. Um, and I found I found the, the, the naval terminology um, a bit heavy going somebody that doesn't have a huge amount of, of knowledge in that in that respect as well um i found um you know i think i think you're right rachel in the sense that it does immerse you within that period but i almost think that occasionally <laughs> some, of, some of the phrasing it, it, it sounds a bit engineered <laughs> the way the way that it, it it does so i think sometimes certain certain terms certain things are pointed out to you from like from what i gathered that um felt almost it almost felt unnecessary I suppose and I felt I felt weighed down heavily when I was reading it by this this raft of new terminology that um that made me struggle through it to be honest. I think that's a really fair point actually and in, in terms of accessibility because I came to Napoleonic fiction through Sharp and I started reading Sharp at 13 and you know that that was great I powered through them and I had no issue I did start reading, I read Master and Commander the first time, I think it was about 14, and I really struggled with it and sort of reread them um, later when I was at uni and then got hooked. But I, yeah, if you, were, if you were a newcomer, total newcomer in Napoleonic history, it's maybe not the first one you should go for. Um, it's, it's not the most accessible, but... I mean, perhaps a couple of learning lessons first go a long way, I think. <laughs> yeah. You may you may well have convinced me to be honest with you to to pick it up again and give it another go. It was four four or five years ago. I um I tried and and failed. So yeah, you may well have I think convinced me to have another another stab at it. They so are worth is, it, yeah. See, this is interesting because I was going to say exactly the same thing that I tried. I think it was Master and Commander um, to do with the film coming out. Um, I think I was probably about the same age, about fourteen, and enjoyed some bits of it I mean I really vividly remember for some odd reason um the scene where um Aubrey and Maturin meet for the first time but they don't have any awareness of one another and um they're at some kind of um musical performance a dog or regatta or whatever it is that you call it um and I think Maturin turns around and basically has a pop at Aubrey for being half a beat off yeah, he does. Uh, yeah. He's tapping away on it on his uh, knee or something, and really kind of liked that relationship, but struggled to keep kind of going. Um, so it, uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting one. I guess the the slightly obvious and banal question to ask is, folks will if if they don't know of the books, they will know of the film uh, with Russell Crowe and uh, playing um, Aubrey and, and Paul Bettany as Maturin. 
and the the film mashes together elements from a number of the different books how accurate is the big screen portrayal because you do get an element of the sort of bromance that exists there but at the same time from what you're saying it kind of feels to me like perhaps they've dumbed it down a little bit yeah I wouldn't say dumbed it down but it's definitely not explored to the same depth and I I guess you know in very much because they've got such a limited time frame with a film whereas you know with especially if you did something like a series you could really explore it in loads of depth so you you get this sort of sense of the regard um but you you don't really get the depth of the 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 story etc and when they talk about um you know there's the bit when they're arguing in the cabin and Jack says to Stephen oh now you're talking like an Irishman and Stephen says well I am an Irishman that's not really explored because what you get in the book is Stephen's ties to the United Irishmen and sort of his revolutionary past and the sort of complicated relationship he has with Jack's very first first lieutenant when he gets his command so you miss out on all, all sort of like the the nuances and you don't know that sort of Jack's been the making of Thomas Poolings and all the other the other elements that you um, they kind of touch on and you get that, you know, Stephen's natural philosophy, etc. But you don't really get the same sense of, you know, Stephen is an espionage agent because that's what he is. And that's how they manage to contrive it, that he stays with Jack because he's on very specific assignments very often. And he attends as Jack's personal guest rather than always a, um, an allotted surgeon. So you get the sense of the story. And I love, I genuinely, it's one of my favourite films. The soundtrack's great. The actors are great. But it's not, it's like most books, you know, the, the book is always deeper. Um, so good film, but books are better. It's always the rule, really, isn't it? Read the books before you see the, whether it's big screen or small screen, before you see the screen adaptation. Apart from um, Last Mohicans, that's the uh, exception. <laughs> yes, okay. Fair <laughs> <laughs> <Better> comment. <laughs> it's, it's a really good point. <laughs> <laughs> no arguments around the room on that one um although at least uh with no let's not go into game of thrones um before i go off on an extended <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> let's just say last mohicans actually not quite napoleonic but uh it's up there as a as a period film with the the, the pure trilogy actually it's more than trilogy just the layers of landscape music love story battles costume just ah uh, what a film I've never seen it, so I'll maybe have to go and watch it then. You really will. However, the rifle is uh, about 60 years out of date that Daniel Day-Lewis uses. But other than that... <laughs> I'm surprised it wasn't Marcus who picked up on that. But anyway, <laughs> let's let's move it swiftly on before we start getting into kind of nerdy stuff about weapons, which no doubt Marcus will draw us into later. Gavin, I want to come to you next. Um, and this is the only entry that feels a little bit more contemporary to our period than a lot of these other novels and I, I'm going to stop talking because I don't want to give spoilers but take it away with your choice. No yeah I think I think you're probably right I think to be honest with you by the sounds of it some of the reasons for championing war and peace is similar to Rachel's reasons. Uh, um, I mean when you asked me to champion this particular book I must admit I, I didn't feel like I've been set the hardest challenge in the world. <laughs> Um, obviously, not only is it a fantastic Napoleonic Wolf story, it's probably one of the greatest novels ever written. Um, I think it's the best book about the period because it has such an incredible degree of depth to it. I mean, it's about war, definitely, um, and the impact of war, but it's also about people, fundamentally, and what it means to be human. 
Um, it's about history, it's about philosophy, it's about love, death, it's with honor, faith, um, salvation. I suppose it's just, you know, a, um, a fantastic exploration of life, albeit set against the backdrop of the Napoleonic Wars. Um, so for those that don't know, I mean, War and Peace um, is set entirely in Russia, begins in 1805, when we're introduced to many of the main characters as a sort of soiree, I suppose, for want of a better word. Um, and then we follow the trials and tribulations of them right around to 1813. And there's a, there is a short epilogue that describes some events in 1820 as well. Um, there are some main characters. There are many, many characters, actually, it must be said. Um, main characters are probably Prince Andre, who's a Russian aristocrat and an army officer. Um, Pierre Bazukov, who's the illegitimate son of a Russian count. Um, Natasha Rostov and her brother Nikolai. In fact, the sort of the Rostovs um, uh, are one of the main families. Um, and there are many other important characters also. There are historical characters. Of course, Napoleon makes the appearance as a Zukov, as a, as a, as a, number, a number of different um, famous Russians this, in this era. Um, fairly early on in the novel, Pierre inherits his father's wealth. Andre goes off to fight the Battle of Austerlitz, which is something of a turning point, really, and a catalyst. But, you know, I'm not going to go through, obviously, the entire plot, because quite a bit happens in a 1600-page book. Um, we'll be here all night. But unsurprisingly, we see the impact of Napoleon's 1812 invasion um, and all the characters and also on the people of Russia as well. I think probably the first thing I want to say is War and Peace is a daunting read. Um, but it's actually very accessible. It, it zips along at a real pace. I think in many ways, and I've seen somebody else say this, it's just an adventure story. Um, for those of us that enjoy that classic semi-fictional war novel, there's plenty of action and adventure. Um, the battle scenes have been praised for their chaotic realism. Um, Tolstoy published the book in 1865, so we actually had the opportunity to speak to veterans of the, of the conflict, and he fought in the Crimean War, so he had first-hand experience of this kind of fighting. Um, you know, I think it'd be fair to say that if you dropped a Napoleonic soldier within the middle of the Crimean War, they'd, they'd know what was going on. Things would look reasonably familiar, at least, you know, there'd be, there'd be red coats and the like. Um, and so he had first-hand experience of this kind of fighting, which I think gives him um, a, a leg up when describing these kind of scenes. I mean, war for Tolstoy, I don't think is ever heroic. I think his close proximity to the Napoleonic Wars can almost be felt in the pages. There's no over-description of the period because he pretty much lived in it, um, which I think, I think creates a degree of real, um, real sort of authenticity. And more generally, he's able to, over the space of a few sentences, go from wide epic descriptions of landscapes and down into e intimate um, details of characters. I mean, I don't need to really praise Tolstoy's writing ability, I don't think. I imagine that's, that's been done um, to death, really, but um, it's worth probably saying. I think secondly, and again, similar to what Rachel said, there are no there are no heroes and villains here. Each character has depth. At times, the characters actually really quite irritate the hell out of you, particularly when it comes to matters of love. But I guess that's kind of the point, right? You know, we're all irrational, um, even more so when we're under pressure, even more so living through periods of conflict. You know, we live with these characters for a long time, so they change a great deal. Natasha, for example, begins as a 13-year-old girl, ends up as a married woman. Um, there's very little stereotyping when we encounter French characters. We're not invited to load them, cough, cough, um, on the basis of nationality and moustaches. Uh, and in fact, Napoleon isn't even presented himself as really a, a black and white figure. I think lastly, um, and probably more profoundly, the novel makes us think about history itself and the way the Napoleonic Wars is remembered and the way people have written about it. 
Um, he doesn't really prescribe to the great man theory of history. Once you get right to the end of the book, there's another 200 words, um, which is essentially a histo historiographical essay um, or a his history essay um, where um, Tolstoy talks about how the great man theory of history doesn't really apply. Um, he believes it's the actions of single individuals that decide events that actually um, it's small mundane actions of thousands of everyday people that can make a huge difference. He makes the point um, somewhere else in the novel, I think, with Napoleon, of course, didn't act alone. He was aided by thousands of troops all dragged along together by a combination of free will and necessity. Um, it makes us think in a sense, not about generals and heroes really, but um, unless be honest, mostly masculine perspectives, but all actors that lived and died during such like a, um, a momentous um, period of history. And although it's set during the Napoleonic period, really it has a, has a life of its own, I think. It doesn't feel like a historical novel in the classic sense, but a novel set during a historical period. Um, and I was looking around for, for some good, good quotes on this earlier. And the French writer and art critic Roland Rolland, I think, which is a good, good place to end, said, uh, this work, like life itself, has no beginning, no end. It is life itself and its eternal movement. And um, in that sense, I think the book still feels almost, almost alive, even though it was written a long time ago. Wow. Wow. The quality of the discussion tonight is, these discussions are always good. <laughs> I always love doing these. But yeah, um, I think folks might end up having just a tiny bit of a headache by the end of this, simply because the discussion is so good that it's making us think. Um, I, I love what you say there about not subscribing to the great man of history notion, which is quite unusual for the time when you consider that actually a lot of the historiography that we have from that period is great man of history. That's where it comes from, you know, grand narratives, looking at the people at the top who make the big decisions. And in that sense of looking at the little people, as I call them, that what we would now term history from below, but from, mm. you know, okay, this is literature from below, if you will. Um, that, that sense certainly speaks to me, and I think it probably speaks to a lot of people. I'm gonna go for a deliberately tongue-in-cheek cheap shot here. Did it need to be quite so long? <laughs> That is a deliberately facetious question. You don't have to answer it unless you're. <laughs> it's a, it's a it's it's a fair it's a fair point. You know, um, it's though I'll be completely honest with you. As soon as I finished it, which wasn't that long ago, it was only about three or four months ago, I had the real inclination to pick it up and start all over again. It really it it, it sort of it just seems to it it lives with you as a book. It's a difficult thing to describe. Um, you know, there's somebody else I can't remember who something like if life could write it would it would write like Tolstoy and that there's a lot of truth to that and of course he blends a lot of facts and fiction as well I mean you can be reading about you know this particular narrative and then he might go off and, and <laughs> write 50 pages um again on on the nature of history um <laughs> and I think though that 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 only adds to that only adds to it yeah it's a fair comment and also it's, it's a product of the time isn't it i mean if you look yeah. at other works um notably les miserables which is another just doorstop of a book um i suppose that leads me on to another question there which is is there a les miserables effect and what i mean by that for folks who aren't familiar is that a lot of what people think they know about waterloo which is basically wrong comes from people taking the fiction of les mis and assuming that that's, it's kind of become subsumed into the narratives. People have treated um, Hugo as, as a historical authority when with the best will in the world, he's not. 
um, hence why there shouldn't be a memorial to him on the Waterloo battlefield. But that's a rant <laughs> for another day. Um, do we have an equivalent with... You're not wrong. I know I'm not wrong, but we really don't want to start me off on that. Um, do we have an equivalent with War and Peace? I think so. There's, I mean, there's a lot of discussion in his book about um, who started the fires in, in Moscow. Um, and I think he, he suggests, as, as, he, as he would, that actually, you know, it wasn't done by purpose and that actually um, it's probably the result of, you know, several unattended campfires at the same time. I think though all of this is caveat, caveated by Tolstoy in that he, he does admit that, you know, this is a blend of facts and fiction. He, he, at, no, he at no point says this is historic, these are historical truisms. He says, what, by, by this kind of blend of writing, I feel like I'm actually getting closer to the truth. And, you know, it's also in some of the things he says, um, sometimes you find yourself disagreeing with the book and it almost sounds, it almost sounds like he's, he's, he's being a hypocrite or it sounds like um, he's almost contradicting himself. But I, th I think that probably speaks to his, his Russian philosophical <laughs> view on life as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, like I say, th there are many aspects that people probably... Um, disagree with but he caveats it all by saying he isn't the utmost authority let me open that up around the room then andy have you got anything that you'd want to kind of chip in when it comes to war and peace i think it's i think war and peace is interesting and i'll just pick up on what gavin said there at the end in in terms of the russian philosophy and the russian method of storytelling um and I mean, for people who, who, who are slightly put off by it, I, I was put off by Tolstoy massively um, when I first tried to pick it up. And I sat down with a pad of paper and I was going along, going, right, who is related to who? What is the name? How does this actually in front of? And I just actually I ended up putting it down, walking away. And then I picked up James Clavell. And I know that's a bit of a leap, but if you read James Clavell's books, he takes a very similar approach with the storytelling. And actually, if you can get into that, you can get into Tolstoy. And I think it's a, it, it, actually reading it, you start to view events from a different perspective. And I think that's key, speaking from a schooly perspective, an educator's perspective, getting into the mind's eye of somebody else and seeing, you've, seeing the world from that different perspective really gives you a different view of events today. And I think that is one of the great strengths of the novel is that it's actually still relevant it was of its time but you look at the world today and what happened in 1812 is still relevant and he makes that clear i don't know if that's something you pick up from it but but it's something i'll do yeah i mean I, I i completely agree i think as well like like you say it can be it can be tough to get into but also because of because of the way because of the way it's written because of that kind of storytelling tradition you can equally pick it up and read a page in five minutes and then all, and dip in and out of it, or you can sit down and read it for three hours. And I think that's probably speaks to this, the way that the kind of, the consciousness of the characters runs almost th throughout the novel. It's, it's, it's actually quite an intangible thing, I think, to describe, particularly from somebody like me that doesn't come from a literary background necessarily. I probably don't have the right terminology, but I think, yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with you. Um, it's yeah, it's interesting, and the way that it's able to skip between events so so simply and so flawlessly 
it sort of skips between them without you really noticing it. And time, time has a different meaning. Mm. Time has a completely different meaning. And it's, it's, it's like going and watching a, um, a friend of mine took me to a Bollywood film ages ago. And he said, oh, we'll just go into this theatre. You know, going, but it's halfway through. So don't worry, it'll start again in an hour's time. <laughs> and it's just a completely different view of time to, to the very linear progression that we're, we're used to and mm. how events happen. And I find that really interesting and, and, and how that repurposes itself. Marcus, what about you? Well, this is the one that bit maybe like Gavin, I've got a confession. I've, I've never read War and Peace. Um, and I think it's probably my English teacher's fault uh, because I little kind of side anecdote. She said she backpacked across Europe after university with one of her friends. And uh, what her friend decided to do was take War and Peace and then every 100 pages, rip the front 100 pages off and drop it in a waste paper bin. And she was just devastated at the kind of crime against novels there but it just it put me off with the weight of the book and I read for pleasure I, I either have books for reference and historical knowledge or page turners so I don't know if it is or isn't because I was put off by by a teacher which is a, a terrible thing so I find the the concept of war and peace um overwhelming but maybe I, I guess my question for Gavin then is linking on something Zach said how is war and peace, you know, synonymous with the, the Russian campaign? To me, if somebody said, you know, the Russian campaign, I would think Tolstoy. I would think the 1812 Overture and a few paintings. But before I can name any battles, I would just think, oh, war and peace. And that is, uh, you know, the TV and film adaptations, there's a few dozen of. Um, that's how I kind of perceive it, uh, for better or worse, maybe. As a bit of a philistine but that's how i see it no yeah yeah definitely and i'd, I'd go further than that i just i'd say almost the entire russian experience of the napoleonic period i mean it starts in 1805 austerlitz comes pretty early on in the novel i'd say i, I think certainly within the first sort of 300 pages early on um, <laughs> but but um it, and that's and that's a seminal moment and again it's it's something um that changes the lives of a lot of the characters i mean particularly I mean, I mean, Andre is, is badly wounded and he actually um, is, is essentially um, pardoned, well, not really pardoned, but, but let off by Napoleon, um, which is a pretty engineered plot device, it must be said. But it's interesting either way that that happens. Um, and, you know, I suppose in terms of the 1812 campaign, all of the major events, um, the characters encounter in one way or another. Um, and I agree, it does, it does really feel feel synonymous I think and it's interesting still now reading from more of a Russian perspective because it's not something I mean like 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 probably I know I certainly Zach anyway reads a lot on, on the peninsula campaigns a lot on the British perspective I mean I know Dominic Levine's got that really excellent book Russia against against Napoleon but I mean other than that my, my knowledge wasn't brilliant I don't think um on on the Russian side of things and again, you know, you shouldn't be treating obviously a novel like this as a necessarily a history book, but I think it's a brilliant, a brilliant point of reference. Um, and like I say, it shows, it shows, I suppose, the impact of conflicts on so many different people. Um, maybe not quite through all levels of society. At the end of the day, a lot of the main characters are are aristocrats, but you know, they have an impact themselves on on serfs, for example. I mean, there's an, there's a point where Pierre tries to, I think, emancipate all the serfs and. 
he tries to, you know, he, he tries to sort of make his way through um, or live a moral life in an Im immoral world. Um, and, you know, in, in a world that, that quite clearly he's, he's struggling with because it's embroiled in conflict. So, yeah, Kevin, I'd be really interested to know your perspective, because you're saying it's portraying a lot of uh, real life characters, historical figures. I'd be really interested to know how you think they are portrayed versus history, especially characters like Napoleon, who, from the Russian perspective, you know, they characterised him as one of the Antichrists. Uh, they really went to town on some of the propaganda against him. And it was, you know, it was propaganda, it was effective. And how that portrayal comes across from the Russian side, if you said actually he, they give him, you know, some multifacets and he's got some layers to him and it's not, yeah, just be interested now how you, you feel he comes across. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, like I say, I mean, he, he essentially um, lets, lets Andre he, off the hook when he's wounded on the battlefield. So quite early on, he probably challenges certainly 1860s perceptions of, of Napoleon. At least I'd imagine that would be the case anyway. He actually um, looks at things slightly from Napoleon's perspective in, in a couple of scenes. I can't, I can't quite remember exactly um, how he comes across in that bit. I'd say that generally all historical characters like Napoleon, like the Tsar as well, um, they're not necessarily seen to be um, idolised in any particular way. A couple of characters, particularly look at, look at Tsar Alexander, initially um, almost as, as a deity. Um, and I think Tulsa almost suggests that the reason why the Russians lose the Battle of Austerlitz is because they're motivated by intangible notions of glory and honour and over-veneration of these particular individuals. Whereas actually, I think he tries to reduce them a little bit and, and just, and just humanise them. Um, I mean, yeah, I think, I think it's interesting because, I mean, Tolstoy himself, of course, is a, is a Russian nobleman. I think he's a Russian count. So, I mean, and this, when War and Peace is written, it's before the period where um, Tolstoy has this kind of religious transformation um, or almost this sort of existential crisis, I suppose. Um, so I would say that his relationship in general um, with, with sort of the upper echelons of society and those kinds of individuals is complicated at best. Um, but even so, I don't think he necessarily <laughs> ignores all their, all their human qualities either or suggest that any of them can possibly be responsible for all of society's ills at the time, um, which I think is quite a long-winded answer, probably, <laughs> to your question. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's great. I mean, insight into the human condition is probably always welcome. So uh, thank you. See, I'm still reeling from this idea that you can just rip 100 pages off the front of the book. Yeah. It's coming from somebody who doesn't even bend the books open enough to be able to read them normally, because that will then crease the spines. Um, so I end up doing this weird kind of contortion thing where I peer into the pages in order to keep the books up in pristine. So to just tear a book apart is... You'd... I think, I, I genuinely, so going back to the, the anecdote then, it was purely because they were backpacking and it was such a heavy book, they were lightening their load. Um, it was the literal yeah. side of that. But uh, yeah, there's no I found excuse. There's no excuse. I'm having none of it. Rachel, anything that you want to say in relation to, to War and Peace? But yeah, that's horrifying. Imagine doing that to a book. What kind of barbarism was that? Um, but yeah, no, I can't criticise War and Peace. It is, it's one of the literature's masterpieces and possibly one of the very best things I've ever read. I was going to kind of touch on the point Zach already made, because I know in um, sort of in our little 
community on Twitter, I've seen people who specialise in the Russian campaign have said it's got a bit of a um, habit of fueling myths. So I, I guess that would be my only criticism. I think in terms of MDs listening, they're kind of from what Marcus had put off in terms of the sheer size of it. I think getting the right translation is super important. Um, I think my one's by Anthony Briggs, but I found it just as readable as any of the other books we're, we're discussing tonight. It didn't feel like a slog. Um, one of the things I think War and Peace does really well through Andre is it kind of, it does humanize in the way that people can look at the conflict and the period, you know, Napoleon and the Tsar, et cetera, and ultimately transform how they think, because we see a lot of that um, in France, you know, how they transformed their opinions of Napoleon and the idea of war, etc. And I found that really interesting to read from a from a Russian perspective. So I I can't really criticize it. It's a wonderful book. It is just a masterpiece. I mean, one one thing, if I could just add something very quickly, which is I think interesting as well, is it reflects obviously Tolstoy's own views on on conflicts, which do change as, as his, his career goes on. There's a really interesting exchange before the Battle of um, uh, Borodino between Pierre and Andre, where they're talking about the idea of, of humanity in war. And Prince Andre says something almost sounds initially like a contradiction, where he says, I believe that we should um, try to kill all French prisoners. We don't, we don't take any prisoners whatsoever. He said, because the longer that we continue to tell ourselves that we can try to create a semblance of humanity within conflict, the more that these kinds of conflicts are going to continue. I think it was a really interesting way of, I suppose, um, sort of, I suppose, a really interesting way of demonstrating Tolstoy's own views on war and conflict um, through um, quite, I suppose, shocking statements on Andre's part, statements that you wouldn't necessarily expect from the character at that point in the, in, in the novel. Brilliant. Thank you very much for that, Gavin. That was a tour de force through Tolstoy. Um, let's let's keep the momentum going, um, and for the first time, we're going to go double naval on this. Naval history hasn't had much coverage on the Napoleon Assist, which is something I'm thinking about resolving, folks. Don't worry, um, but it'll probably be in the form of a condensed naval month at some point. But we've got two naval entities featuring tonight, and it is an entity that we're turning to now of the same kind of order as Aubrey Maturin. Andy, take it away. Well, I'd just like to point out that the Hornblower came first by, by a country mile. He came first. Okay, Marriott was there before. Close, surely. But, but then, it come, then, then comes Forrester and Hornblower. Um, I'm going to take a slightly different view as to why people should read these books. And I'm going to do it because I'm, I'm ex-Navy, I'm an ex-Schoolie, and my background was all about educating the Navy of today via the past. That, that was it. And so I'm going to come at it from that perspective with really four key takeaways from them. And the first key takeaway is Hornblower is the epitome of a thinking officer. He spends his entire life, you look at him playing whist, you look at him doing his navigation, his seamanship, everything is about trying to act outwit the other person. Even when he is outgunned, outmatched, he's trying to seek an angle and he's using everything that he has got to his advantage. I think from, from the perspective of a, of, a, of a modern service person or anybody who's studying war, 
actually seeing that lived experience and seeing what that does to somebody's thinking processes, which Forrester, and I don't know how he did it, but he captured really quite well. You start seeing the, the impact of the loneliness of the law. Um, and that's, that's a real departure. It, it creates an atypical hero. Um, but it, but it is a line of departure that, that sets him apart from pretty much anybody else in the genre. Um, but then I'll take it back a step and I'll go, well, why read Hornblower anyway? And it really, for me, comes down to three things that um, Richard Harding said about leadership in, in the age of sale. One is the vision of success. The second part is the, the physical structures to achieve that. And the third is the lived experience. And all of those things have to align if you're going to be able to follow the, the golden thread from grand strategy down to tactical action. And for me personally, when I read Hornblower, I get it. It's there on the page. And the fact that Hornblower isn't ever at a major fleet action re really tells you about that vision of success. The, the, the major battles are, are mentioned in passing almost, the Nile, Copenhagen, Trafalgar, they're there in the background, but actually they're not important. And it comes back to, to what Gavin was saying about um, the, the little people being, and all those mundane actions going on day in, day out. Um, that's what the Navy was, an 800 ship Navy of which 100 ships were ships of the line. The other 700 were doing what Hornburn does, which is, spending 30 months at sea blockading Brest, um, poking his nose in and seeing what the enemy are doing. Um, it's a really cool betting view of maritime strategy and, and, and maritime power rather than just Mahanian naval strategy. Um, and I think it's, it's still really relevant. You just have to look at what happened in the Black Sea uh, uh, last week um, to see that, it, that, it's, that it's still there. Um, it's of its time but it reflects Forrester's reality and his, his understanding, seeing him come out the back end of, of World War II. And in World War II, he was writing propaganda pamphlets explaining this kind of thing. That was his job, and he's, he's turned that into a literary, into a literary genre. Um, so in all of the novels, this theme is a constant backdrop, um, and it makes you aware of how Hornblur, whether it be as a midshipman, lieutenant, master and commander, a post-captain, a commodore, a commander-in-chief. He's, he's one cog in a very big machine, but every cog is vital. And this brings, brings us to his idea to, of duty and sense of self. He knows how small he is, but he also knows that if he doesn't do his duty, the machine breaks. Um, I, and that really helps, you, helps him drive his character forward, always being better, always seeking, seeking that accommodation. So I think it's really, really important to, it, it does trace that. The second bit, which kind of comes from that, is those physical structures. Um, I'll go back to Hornblower and the Hotspur and his, his cruise off rest for 30 months. The, the idea of a ship being at sea for 30 months and replenishing at sea, maintaining itself at sea, is just anathema today. We can't do it. You, you, you physically can't do it, really. Um, yeah, we can keep them resupplied for so long, but but in, in those contexts, no, you can't. And the it's there in the writing as well that there's this huge apparatus behind behind this sloop, which is keeping it on station. Um, 
And all the time, they've got to be thinking about their food, they've got to be thinking about their water, their seamanship, making sure all the got it's drill every day. They are drilling the ship in order to keep it at, at, at readiness because they don't know what's coming. Um, and the sheer scale of logistical and organizational machinery that this entails is laid out in a way that is accessible and informative. He really set the groundwork for people like NAM Roger to then go away and do all the research on the Georgian Navy and bring it into the academic world. He sets that groundwork there. And from again, from my perspective, please, every naval seaman officer, executive officer, read this because logistics wins wars. You might go to sea and you might shoot, shoot at people, but ultimately the sea's not going to get any saltier and it's going to be the logistics which is going to win it. And that, for me, is a massive takeaway. But finally, it's got to be about the lived experience. Um, and there's no point having the vision and structures if you can't sustain life. And unfortunately, life at sea is just dull. It's dreadful. It's dreary. It is just stooging around at a small rate of knots, waiting for something to happen and looking forward to the next good thing, which is your meal. Or rather, it's what the chefs put out to you that hasn't been through the blender three times. Um, and then when you go to action stations, it's five minutes of phonetic activity and then waiting for action scanning because you're hoping that that phonetic activity is not even going to have to be used. Um, and he captures all of that. He captures it beautifully. You see it in every single one of his novels that there's a little bit of bursts of action and then there's a couple of paragraphs explaining that for the next two hours, nothing happens. They're just watching Horizon. Um, and so it's into that space that he really explores what leadership at sea really means, which is about motivation, which is about um, maintain, maintenance of morale um, in, in, in a job which is routine um, 99 times out of 100. Um, and so he brings in this idea of an introspective, lonely commander who is working in the most humane way he can to get the best out of his people. And he's coaching them. He's thinking up rather ingenious ways of getting around the articles of war in order to not alienate his ship's company. Um, and he's doing it all in such a way that actually builds a stronger team. Um, and when I read, when I read Hornblower, I then think of things like uh, Andrew St. George's The Royal Navy Way of Leadership. And I think, if only people just read Hornblower, we don't need to spend 70 grand to get a consultant in to tell us how we do our business. Hornblower has got it. He's got the values and standards. He's got the ethos. And he's captured how lonely command actually is. And I think to, for that to come from somebody who won't never serve for, for reasons of a medical, medical defect, and for it to still be applicable today. I mean, that, that's, that's the best thing a novel can be, surely. He's captured it. Um, and I can't really, can't really fault him for that. He's not high literature, but he's certainly useful. Well played, Andy. And a really different take on what it means to be a great novel. But I think from what you said, one that really kind of plays to the strengths and kind of, uh, I like the fact that at the end, you kind of acknowledge, well, perhaps, on a literary level, this doesn't match up to, let's say, for the sake of argument, Tolstoy, but actually in other areas, it surpasses it. I have to start with the confession, which is 
the confession that seems to be going around the room. So this is the one I haven't ever touched. Um, somehow I've just never crossed paths with a, a Forrester novel. Um, obviously seen the small screen adaptation. I, I also liked that you picked up that this kind of felt to me from what you said, like the antithesis of Sharp in that Sharp is all about a good chunk of war is boring. So therefore let's fill in the gaps with something exciting. This is, is not that. This is war is boring. Acknowledge that war is boring. This is the reality of war. And, and kind of you, you find a way to embrace that within the context of the novel. Also like the fact that you managed to shoehorn in, shoe in a crime and punishment reference with uh, talk about the articles of war always goes down well with me. Um, it's, uh, this is a banal question, which reflects uh, a lack of reading on, of having read the novels on my part, but the small screen adaptation, how does that match up in your opinion against the books? So I'm taking, you mean the Johan Griffith? Yeah. So I think what Johan Griffith brings to it is the, the brooding, awkward, introspective, and I'm going to use the word antithesis to what a naval officer should be. Even today, my, my, we all do my Briggs tests and the extroverts always come out on top and they're always going to get to the top of the OJAR ladder and so on and so forth. The introverts, they're never going to get there. And yet it's the introverts who are pushing themselves. And you see that with Johan Griffith when, when he's, you see him thinking, he's got that calculating, that calculating visage. And actually that's what Hornberg comes across as. The fact that he has to move constantly, he's pacing the deck in order to get his thoughts out. It is that kinesthetic learner almost um, in, in action. Um, so I think that comes across because unfortunately, warfare at sea is bloody expensive. It's expensive to do in reality and it's expensive to, to replicate on the screen. Um, so it falls down in those, in those ways and they can't go into the the really basics of seamanship and sailing, which you would want to do. Um, but I'd say it's far truer to, to the, the books, particularly Mr. Midshipman Warburg, first the first series of novels that were serialized, um, far truer than, than I'd say Sharp or, or, or Maturin or, um, or Tolstoy to, to a certain extent, because they can, they can focus in. You've got a much smaller canvas on board ship, your, your, your world literally slims down to the couple of hundred feet fore and aft that you've got. And if you're unlucky enough to the, to the, to the daily round of just going up and down two deck, it is a small canvas. You can film that. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that really struck me about the Master and Commander film, which w was that for a, a Hollywood blockbuster, it actually did a really nice job of trying to embrace ship life um, to the point where if I was ever going to use film as teaching material, which I virtually never did, I would use Master and Commander um, in, a, in a school environment. Um, let, let's open it up before I still sort of start asking questions that are embarrassingly basic from a, a lack of awareness. Rachel, let's start with you. What are your thoughts on this one? And as a kind of a competitor, if you will, to uh, the Aubrey Matron series. Okay, I'm the direct opposite. So I've got zero knowledge of any naval matters, however, but my background is in book publishing because my undergrad's a publishing degree. So for me, um, I've, I've read Hornblower. I do enjoy it. Um, I haven't read it for quite a while. The only one I've reread fairly recently was Mr. Midshipman Hornblower. 
for me in terms of literary context I find it probably of all four options tonight the least engaging I still enjoy it but I find Hornblower is a comparatively colder protagonist than Sharp or Prince Andre or Jack or Stephen um, so sometimes I find I get really frustrated with him but then I totally take your point that it's meant to illustrate the loneliness of command and he Hornblower does kind of conform to the literary trope that your hero is awkward and doesn't quite fit in and has to be this sort of um, isolated figure. So I, I totally take your point there. I do find it slightly colder. So in terms of, obviously you're very much coming at this from the point of view of an expert, for if someone was picking up the, the book um, or any of these books, um, in layman's terms or somebody who doesn't specialise either in the period or in naval matters, do you think it's the most accessible um, in terms of it's very action paced, but do you think it's going to be the most literary engaging? Not the most literary engaging. I'll, I'll, I'll say that all, all day because even reading it I've, uh, from, from numerous other things. Yeah, he, he doesn't go into detail. He's not a great, great eye for the description. He's not telling you all the backgrounds. What he does though, is he hones in on those character defects in Baldur and he uses them, as you said, he uses them to illustrate what it is to be a man alone or a woman alone, where you've got 120, 200, 400, 600 people who are looking to you and how you are constantly second guessing yourself and how you are never going to be good enough. Um, and that's one of the one of the endearing traits about Baldur in some respects is that he knows he's not good enough. Um, so there's there's no arrogance, there's no braggadocio, there's there's none of that which can come out in 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 other in other protagonists. And he he desperately doesn't actually like his job. The idea of bringing death and destruction to the enemy is not something that he is comfortable with. He's comfortable with the idea of himself dying, and he actually seeks it out on numerous occasions. But he does it from from the perspective of one, I know I'm a coward, and two. I can't be a coward if people are going to follow me. Um, and I think that's that's a really good um, example of reality. Um, and it grounds it a bit. Um, but no, it's not high literature. Um, I think it is accessible because he doesn't go into the massive detail. Um, and he doesn't expect you to understand sailing beyond the basics. Mm -hmm. um, you, you can read it without any understanding of what, what the weather gauge is, the UA, etc., he will explain it to you. Yeah, that's that's really fair. I guess the only other point I wanted to say was, um, obviously he does, yeah, Forrester does a great job in focusing in on Hornblower and Hornblower's sort of internal dilemmas and existential crises, etc. Um, do you think he does as good a job as O'Brien or even Cornwell in terms of portraying the sort of supporting cast, um, you know, and fleshing them out so that it's it's less of an ensemble piece. No, no, it is all about Baldur. Um, so it is quite arrogant in that respect, but it's 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 the other characters are isolated because Baldur isolates himself. Yeah. And the closest we get to anybody else looking in is uh, Bush in um, Lieutenant Baldur when Bush joins the renown and it's his perspective of Baldur. Um, and really all that does is reinforce what we know about Baldur as this, this very isolated, unhappy, lonely character. Um, 
and actually the only time you do see Hornblower happy, and maybe this is where uh, Bernard Cornwell got it from, is when he's he's having an affair with a French nobleman, um, and, and and she dies, yeah. and the rest of his wives, none of them ever understand it. I say none of them, neither of them ever understand it. Um, and he is a man who is most definitely out of kilter with the world that surrounds him. He's happiest when he's, he's out thinking, out foxing, and he's buried in a problem. He wants problems to solve. Marcus, what's your take on all of this? Thanks. Yeah, firstly, um, I haven't had the pleasure of talking with Andy before. So uh, kind of welcome, hello, and uh, really nice to um listen to you on that and it was uh I found it quite amusing I've got some friends who are in the same branch as you and I found uh, the the schooly traits coming through with talking about values and standards uh within the Royal Navy um very telling because I don't think many others would pick up on that side of it which is which is very uh, relevant actually and, and very important in many ways my problem with Hornblower you say he's a you know a single character is Hornblower I'm not sure he's the most likable character. I have described him in the past as wet in comparison to Sharp. You know, there's a lot, they get a lot, a lot of questions on the forums about, oh, let's do a crossover of Sharp and Hornblower. And I genuinely think they wouldn't get on. I, I think Sharp would punch him. Uh, and he, he's got these internal dilemmas and I'm not sure that's always enjoyable. So I think we haven't, <laughs> we probably haven't been a, a, too critical tonight, but I like the books. I like the film adaptation and the TV, big screen and small screen, because it, you know it was it was a big screen adaptation um, on silver screen in the in the legendary era of Hollywood. But he he likes the dilemma. He's got his own problems going on. He's not sure if he should kill. He doesn't really like one of his wives. He's likes being at sea, but yet he's always got the solution because he's the naval genius, and it just. I'm not sure the character is rounded enough for me. I want there to be a different flaw other than an internal dilemma and dwelling on. I don't personally enjoy a character who's going to sit back and think too much personally, because again, my previous point that I read for pleasure, I want the story to progress uh, on that level. So from a kind of a literary point of view, that's my that's my problem with him. I want a naval character who's going to take the action forwards, which is more like Aubrey Matrin. Uh, but you mentioned, sorry, Andy, I'll, I'll hand this over to you in just a second. It's just an excuse to have a dig at Marcus, really. Um, you, you mentioned about um, him not really getting on with his wife, but your man, Wellington, and his relationship with Kissy Packenham, that, that did not go down well. I mean, Wellington did not like his wife. He married out of duty, so... Is there not something relatable there for you? I thought my man tonight was Richard Sharp. Um, yes, but then I never said Wellington wasn't flawed, but he didn't sit back and brood too much uh, on it and, and complain. He just kind of <laughs> left her and went to the peninsula and won a load of glory for us. And had a few affairs, yeah. Anyway, sorry, um, that's, that's unfair of me to jump in um, on your behalf there, Andy. Please pick it up um, from there. Well, I, th I, th I think everything that everybody says about his character, Hornblower's character, not Wellington's, is, um, is perfectly justified. Um, he, he isn't a particularly likable character. Personally, I think that's quite endearing um, because I want, I want there to be something slightly harsh and, and not right 
with, with people I'm reading because that's the life. Please show me somebody who is perfectly comfortable in their skin. Um, because in my experience, those, those people are normally the first ones to fall. Um, it, it, it really shows that you see him trying to be a better person. The fact that he marries out of duty because I can't let anybody down. If I actually showed my true colours, it would devastate people. And so he's trying to be a better person. And in being a better person, he tells him, trying to be a better person, he tears himself apart doing it. Um, and I think, and he sacrifices his own happiness. Um, I don't think he's ever been happy other than when he was with Marie. Um, and that's where you see him actually start to blossom and then she's killed by Napoleon's goons. Um, so it, it really tells you something about, about his character. Um, it, and it only works, I think, it only works because he's got the time and space that naval warfare provides. Um, when, if, when, you're, when you're doing a land campaign, when you're doing, going into action, you, you go to the forming up point, you cross the line of departure and you're straight into it. There's not clear for action and then wait two hours for the other people to come in. To, to come within range, or as they did at Trafalgar, wait, wait three, four hours to, to get to get within range, and all the time you're under the opponent's gun. It, and we have to give Hornblower the credit that he does marry a Wellesley, of course. Eventually, a fake Wellesley. See, I'm quite liking, I, I mean, I'm feeling slightly ashamed that I've never picked up a, a, a Hornblower book now, because I, this speaks quite a lot to the historian in me. Um, and there is an argument, of course, to be made about, well, does something that's necessarily historically accurate make good literature? Um, and quite often I would suggest that the answer to that is no. And that's part of the tension in a conversation like this. You know, where does that balance lie in terms of getting the, the portrayal just so, as opposed to kind of moving the, the plot forward and all the other literary devices that make a good novel? But I, I'm, I'm liking this. Gavin, round us off with the questions on this one. What are your thoughts here? Yeah, I think to be honest, I'm I'm actually a bit more on Andrew's side with this one. I would say um, I I don't mind the character of Hornblower. I think I first picked up Hornblower when I was a teenager, and that kind of awkward, cold, self-reflective nature, I suppose, that's portrayed by Forster, is at the time felt quite apt and quite relatable. I think I think it still feels to a degree relatable because I mean we're we're always all sort of battling internally, I think, with, with a lot of the decisions we make in life, particularly um, when some of these decisions can be can be so important when, when out at sea. And the, the other thing I was going to say, really, is that I don't know much about, about the author um, as, as a person. I know you said about Hornblower being almost out of kilter with the world, and I wondered whether that could be a reflection of, of Forster himself, whether, you know, he lived through a time of great sort of social upheaval. I wondered whether in, in writing about a naval captain in a bygone age that, that gave him comfort really and whether he himself was the guy that's, that's all about out of kilter with the world that he's currently living in I don't know I think I mean, my, my reading of Forrester is or, or perhaps it's never guess real name sorry um, is very much I mean he wanted to serve and he was turned away he, he was told his heart wasn't his heart wasn't strong enough and so he had to find something else to do with his life. Um, and he also found writing incredibly difficult. He really struggled with it. And I think if you put those two things down on the page, 
then actually they do read across to to all work. The platform is constantly having to work at things, but it's never nothing ever really comes easy, and he's got to really push hard at it. Um, and that he, he doesn't belong. He doesn't really belong in the wardroom. He doesn't really belong at sea. Come on, he's like forty percent of the navy, including himself, to get seasick in a mild in a mild breeze. Um, he shouldn't be there, but he is, and he makes the best of it. Um, and I think, yeah, that comes across from Forrester quite clearly. And who can't relate to struggling with writing? <laughs> I certainly feel that one right now, believe me. Um, again, let's let's move swiftly on. But thank you very much for that, Andy. That was, that was great. And I really like that we've got a different angle. And I feel like we've given you a hard time um, here this, this evening. Um, but I'll tell you who's going to get a harder time, um, <laughs> not least because if I didn't know better, the cynic in me would say that Marx has gone for the easy option here, um, but he absolutely hasn't. Um, he's absolutely 100%. Um, I mean, if you could be like cult sharp, Marcus is cult sharp. Um, I have 100% spoiled <laughs> what he's, oh no. What you folks haven't seen is that he's now gone and pulled out his reenactment jacket. Um, we're going to have to get a screenshot of this. Uh, very sorry. Um, but Marcus has pulled out his, his 95th rifle reenactment jacket. No doubt at some point he's going to pull out Sharp's sword as well because he did buy it at great expense. But Marcus, go on then. Um, do it for Bernard Cornwell, for Sharp, and for the 95th. And what's even worse is this isn't actually my reenactment jacket. This is one I bought purely because it's the officer and I get to dress up and look like Sharp. It does sometimes feel like we have to leave the big to last, if not the best. Bernard Cornwell's epic series started in 1981, uh, actually with Sharp's Eagle. And we are eagerly anticipating the latest release this year in September of Sharp's Assassin. It has created worldwide fandom. It has tens of thousands of fans uh, and has all, all sorts of spin-offs, uh, sub-fandoms. Uh, Jason Sulky keeping the spirit alive, oh, a, every, different types of era and crossovers. There has been sharp fan fiction where he has travelled in time. There are board games, busts, novels, reenactors inspired the world over. Um, you will find the 95th Rifles represented very well in America and Australia, never to mention uh, Britain, of course. We get ourselves Richard Sharp, our working class hero. The first book I picked up halfway through the series when I was a relatively young teenager, the back cover said, meet Richard Sharp, a great British hero. That is, of course, both great British and great British. He's a man who we follow through many shoehorned actions. And we have to admit that he tends to turn up everywhere from meeting Napoleon on Elba, on St. Helena, sorry, uh, shooting uh, the Prince of Orange, being almost best friends with our man Wellington and somehow crossing the Jura at Porto. He is everywhere. He captures the first eagle. He's the first man into Badajoz and Suidad Rodrigo. But that gives us such a fantastic story. He's probably one of the ways that many people find the Napoleonic era, if not Napoleonic literature. We will pick up a Bernard Cornwell and you can finish it in a day or in a week and just turn those pages. He is a, 
um, hinted to it earlier, will explain to you the process of firing a Baker rifle brilliantly well in most novels. So it's very approachable that if you pick up Sharp's regiment, you don't necessarily have had to follow it the whole way through and have it been to reenactments or have had military experience. It instills all sorts of great passion in many people. And I'll try to come to some of his flaws and address those. But I really do feel that it has the following and the, of a great, great series. Um, some of the flaws, it is jingoistic to the extreme. Bernard Cornwell, not just in Sharp. Sorry, I doubt, I hope he ever hears this does not write female characters very well. I did stop reading some of the Saxon series, especially because the character falls in love, marries a woman, she dies, next novel, he mopes around for a chapter, finds another woman, marries her, repeat. It is formulaic. However, we do still get some great female characters, thankfully. They call her the needle, don't ask why. It is given so many people the inspiration to study Napoleonic history that if we did not have Sharp, we would not have the Napoleonicist. It has some bad moments, some slow moments. I am, of course, talking about Sharp's Trafalgar, a, a Jane Eyre at sea, which without the, the passion, a long, boring novel, it is not Hornblower, it is not O'Brien. However, the other 24 novels, long and short, are fantastic. They really do bring the Napoleonic Wars alive. We get through his quick hopping through different actions an insight into so many battles. People will have heard of Waterloo, sometimes just because of Sharp, or they've seen the books or the TV series. And though that has its flaws and we have to spend a lot of time correcting people's assumptions that the 95th Rifles won every battle. And I will apologize to friends in advance, they did not win every battle. The 95th Rifles were not the special forces of the Napoleonic era, despite the representation. But it gives us that insight. We get a dynamic duo in Sharp and Harper, a great brotherhood with some rank involved, I'll admit, and it's a really interesting discussion, but they give us a great partnership where they can take it on. They have their in-jokes and we fall in love with those characters ourselves and we're cheering them on often towards the end of a novel as they rip through lines of French to grab an eagle or to settle a debt against a French officer who's uh, attacked them earlier. We feel always with these books in the heart of the act in Sharp's hand, his sword ripping into the French is so brilliantly written that you don't actually need the TV series as much as a fan of, as, of it as I am because it is so visual. Bernard Cornwell is such a good writer for military action that you can see his sword slashing into those French ranks. I genuinely believe that they are fantastic books. There are many of those books there that I've read multiple times, listened to again and not got bored of on the commute and then bought the next one and the next one. The fact he's gone back and shoehorned ones in where he's missed out is just a pleasure to the fans. And we really are looking forward to September this year. And I hope it continues for he has hinted that Sharp is yet to have a banquet at Apsley House.
Well played, Marcus. Um, it had to be done. Frankly, it probably had to be done by you as well, um, because you are a sharp super fan. Um, how much did that sword cost again? He's, he's resolutely refusing to answer that. I mean, the, setting aside the fact this is the first time I've ever heckled somebody on my podcast um, for your damning critique of my favourite novel in... That was in there just for Which is Sharps Trafalgar. Yes, quite right. There wouldn't be the Napoleonicist podcast if it wasn't for the Sharp novels. That was how I found the period. Um, I think a lot of people would probably be quite grateful um, for that if... Um, the, the Napoleonicist had never come to life but anyway moving on what I I'll tell you what I particularly liked about the sharp novels in my teens was the historical notes at the back of the book um, I remember reading those as a spotty 14 15 year old and thinking wow one day wouldn't uh, this is a gen this isn't uh, kind of hyperbole thinking well wouldn't it be great if one day I could write something a bit like that um, oh how that came back to bite me in the backside 15 years later um, there are plenty of things that we could raise. Um, one of the obvious shots to make is the shoehorn novels, which you could be um, skeptical about. Some of them feel like shoehorn novels, uh, if I'm being honest, but there are others that don't. I mean, so one that does feel like a shoehorn is the one at the Battle of Barossa, where the first eagle is actually taken. Uh, that does feel contrived, but some of the other ones feel much more natural. Um, so the one surrounding the retreat towards the lines of Torres Vedras, for example, does feel like something a little bit more um, in line with, with the storyline. Uh, but, there's, you know, uh, OK, it's his character. He's entitled to do that. I guess my, my initial big question on this is about the following. How much of that is the product of the TV series? Yes, but how much is the TV series the product of the book is my counterpoint. The TV series up until, uh, I'm trying to get this right, about Sword. Um, Jason Sulky will eviscerate me for getting this wrong. No, it's not Sword. Battle, up until Battle, uh, were following the books as closely as they could for budget. Uh, and at Battle, uh, they killed off Perkins uh, for different reasons. I think they're really good adaptations. And... Again, if the series gets people into the books, gets people into the Napoleonic Wars, the amount of times that I would have been approached absolutely and people would ask me about Sharp were quite high. Um, for example, talking about Miguel de Alava, um, Spanish liaison effectively at Waterloo, or Spanish witness at Waterloo, but was also present at Trafalgar. People, and I would point out he was one of the few, not the only, because there was definitely some French uh, regiments who were present at both, but it's hard to trace the individuals on French other ranks. The people would stop me and go, oh, I know someone else. You know, Richard Sharp was at both battles. It, it, it meant that they, then they were at a Napoleonic day out. And so therefore for our era, I take it as a positive still. I mean, yes, it I is. Mean, We've talked at length about this, haven't we, on, on other podcasts, but I do have a slight problem. And I, in fairness, I don't think this is Cornwell's fault. I think this is kind of, uh, this is where the series sort of becomes a victim of its own popularity, which is that now everybody's perception is that there wasn't a battle that didn't involve a guy who was genuinely called Richard Sharp. And I think there are some people who will be surprised to learn that Sharp wasn't a real character. Um, everybody thinks that the 95th were God's gift to warfare and were this kind of proto-SAS style unit 
um, when the reality is much closer to what we see in Forrester in terms of the boring kind of day-to-day -day mundane um, almost trudgery of war, you know, marching and, and all of the boring stuff, which completely gets pushed to the side for that kind of literary device. So this comes back to that, that big question that's kind of going to lie at the heart of, of this, which is, you know, to what extent do you do historical reality versus, um, versus action? I do have a problem with the perceptions that have come off the back of it, but I don't necessarily lay the blame for that at Cornwell's door. You know, he's writing to entertain. And I think he said this as much in interviews, hasn't he? That, you know, he writes to entertain. And if he gets the history wrong, well, then that's something that's a victim to the process of, yeah, of literature. Yeah. In, in as he yeah. said, if I get something wrong, it's a story, enjoy it. But he yeah. does do really good research. You know, he knows those battlefields. Um, and you know, he, he's really walked those grounds. He used to battlefield tour based on the, the popularity of the book, uh, the Sharps Appreciation Society. So that comes across really well, uh, and that's a real positive. And he gets some of those other bits in there. You know, he knows about the comfort of a pack and which ones, the French ones, more comfortable. He certainly dives into areas like Napoleonic surgery into Sharp's sword when he gets infection and, and post-surgical infection. He goes into some, I'm sure he gets it wrong, Zach, but he goes into some courtroom drama with court martials and punishments and blogging and areas like that. And of course, for the, the ex-naval officer and the naval fans in the room, he gets into naval action, not just at Trafalgar, but he kind of gets in and out of, the second battle of Copenhagen. So he covers a really wide remit and it does actually highlight, especially later on some of the shoehorns, he does actually do some really good highlighting of people like Portuguese units, which earlier on gets skipped over far too much in for the glory of the 95th, but actually they start to come through. And I think maybe some of those have mellowed out um, in time and we can actually use that to highlight other eras, hence an inspiration for, you know, Zach and me doing sharpshooters. We can take a little historical nugget and then talk about the gorillas. We can talk about other areas. So, yeah, it's probably actually going back to your thing. It is probably a victim of its own success. I don't think Bernard Cornwell certainly wasn't the first book he wrote and certainly wasn't the first series. It's been a victim of its own success. And, you know, he has fan in, in the uh, American Civil War series, but not enough. You know, he, he gave up on Starbucks Chronicles uh, and they never got made into TV series. Um, Sharp carried on and went beyond the books and took the, the prequels as sequels for better or worse. Uh, but he meant we got more Sharp. Yeah, I mean, I do like I'm often quite surprised when I pick up a Bernard Cornwall about how some of those little details are staggeringly close to the reality, um, particularly considering the fact that I can look at it on the back of the research of the last 40 years and go, yes, in the last 20, 30 years, we've seen a lot of material come out that really proves that point and has brought that knowledge to the mainstream. Whereas he will pick out little details that you've got to dig a bit to get, get it that right. Um, so that often quite impresses me. Let me not hog the microphone uh, and bring some of the other folks in. Gavin, you, you look like you, you're dying to say something here. I mean, yeah, there's there's so much that can be said here, really. And, you know, I'm I'm so torn with this because also it was, it was Sharp that got me interested in this period, um, particularly the television series. In fact, there's a book that my parents still have um, that I wrote when I was about eight, where I talk about the Sharps fighting the Napoleons. So it's quite interesting that I decided that that was the way that that whole conflict was framed um, which in, with, with um, visual demonstrations as well at the same time. 
think Sharp builds a fort, then Ed can you please see some photos of this in the future. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. I keep meaning to post these on Twitter. Actually, um, this is is good. But I mean, yeah, it's. I mean, I kind of reiterate everything that you guys you guys have been saying. The thing is, it has such cultural resonance, <laughs> Sharp. It's it really has become so popular in the mainstream that I think um, I, I'm loath to to really overly criticise it. And you know, absolutely, we talk about the way they describe some of the female characters and some of the female characters in sometimes an overly, overly sexual, sexualized way that's that's quite toe-curlingly awkward to read, to be honest, in many ways. I feel like it's a bit like my dad trying to do the same description in many ways. But um, it's either way, I think um, you can't deny the impact it's had. I totally agree that they're, they're real page turners. Um, they are formulaic in many ways. I think, I think I've even read somewhere that Cornwall put almost like on a blackboard, like this is how I'm going to construct these stories um, and this is how they're going to remain um, readable and this is how you know people are going to continue to, to um, sort of pace through them, I suppose, that keeps people interested. So, I mean, yeah, it's, I do really enjoy them, that they're, they're obviously not without fault, but also it's difficult to criticise the thing that got you interested in the period in the first place. I'm glad it's not just me that's struggling to articulate that. And yeah, formulaic, I would completely agree with you. That was something that I'm actually always um, trying to judge out the back of my mind um, before we, we came on to you. So thank you for bringing this up because yes, there is that, there is a formula, isn't there? There's, there's the early piece of action. Then there's usually some kind of love interest is involved alongside some kind of dirty dealings. Then there's a middle event big drama, shot to some kind of espionage SAS style thing, big battle at the end, and then rides off into the sunset. You know, th there, is, there is that kind of repetition through them. Yeah, Bernard um, Cornwall does that a lot, and I genuinely couldn't tell you some of his Saxon series, which ones I read, because they felt so repeat. And then two years later, he does the same thing, and he goes off and finds an army, gets defeated, loses his woman. And that's his phrasing, by the way, not mine, because he views them so low I think in that series and then he reforms his army finds a new wife and then wins the battle repeat and I, I like the series but it's so formulaic however Bernard Cornwall does have the ability to write brilliantly and do other things you know Sharp's Regiment where there's barely any action he comes back to uh, Essex to reform the regiment it's not like um, Master and Commander where we have a like a big romance kind of back in Britain and high society but it does give it a welcome relief if you read them all back to back or if you you do the marathon and watch the uh, tv series as my, i think my like 17 year old self did and watch all the dvds in one day but it gives that welcome relief and it does prove that we are reading the books into my mind we're reading the books for the characters not just for the action i think sharp sharp's regiment is one of my favorites actually particularly because i mean i live live now and grew up in Essex as well. So there was a kind of local connection. In fact, Cornwall grew up in the same village that I grew up in, uh, Rochford, where I think he was part of like almost a, a really extreme um, religious uh, like church called the Peculiar People, was it? Um, and they were based actually, yeah, in the, in, the, in the same village, which is a nice little bit of extra knowledge. Um, until we fought say, down the road, of course, where they filmed Sharp's Regiment as well. Um, so yeah, and, it, and also I liked what you said about the kind of particular details. And I, the thing he often talks about um, is like the saddle sores caused by the dragoons and like the smell of that. And I, I think those details are, are important, but yeah, 
he does like dragoons an awful lot. <laughs> an awful lot. The of dragoons is more than once. Yeah, I think he's definitely yeah. been too close to the the rear side of a horse. <laughs> and actually, something there that I I forgot to mention, but it's actually very prevalent. Is his religious upbringing. I don't know if anyone. I don't want to dive too quick deeply into it, but um, he has a real bias against religion. Yeah. Uh, well, Christianity actually. And I think his religious upbringing made him very anti-religion. And he has like kind of said he's not going to apologise for that in the past. But his characters who, um, you know, monks, priests and friars are nearly always the villains. And in Sharp and in his other books, you know, especially when he has pagans, the pagans tend to be pretty good. The priests tend to be bastards. Um, and it's something that he does a lot of. Uh, and I don't know if it's made anyone who, you know, holds religion close to their heart ever feel uncomfortable. Um, and I, I, I something I, I almost feel should be more criticism here is, you know, his other thing, as I do feel almost sorry, and this is the conversation Zach and I've had in the past, I do almost feel sorry for Bernard Cornwell's wife. The portrayal of women is yeah. bad. And, you know, having picked up the books again and gone back and read them, the portrayals of women who have suffered sexual assault makes me really scream. Um, and to, to just address this, really feel uncomfortable. I think there's one book where the woman is assaulted, if not raped, probably I think just assaulted, Sharp saves at the last minute. And then it's insinuated that that evening she sleeps with Sharp. Now, unless there's just some horrible Stockholm syndrome type going on, it seems so unlikely. It, it, it seems completely unbelievable and is too masculine driven. And it makes, I, I read it and I found myself skipping because it's, it's not good writing. In fact, it's, it's, it's nasty to read. <sighs> However, I found myself enjoying the series. So it is a, a slight dilemma um, in that. I'll tell you what I think when I now read um, those kinds of scenes from Sharp is I'm immediately reminded of August Schaumann um, the KGL commissary, who I, I think, um, well, Cornwall has clearly read up on it and read the memoirs of Shaman, and I think he's he's put an element of Shaman's personality into um, into Sharp. Because, I mean, he talks about how he chooses to generally give, and I'm quoting Bernard Cornwall here, um, he chooses to give Sharp bodice rippers uh, when he's writing female characters, which I think gives you a, a, a sense of Cornwell's mindset. Andy, let's let's bring you in at this point. What are your thoughts on on the Sharp series? I, I was one of those those boys who, who grew up reading it, and I think it was I think it was six or seven when the first the first uh, TV version was made, and I was absolutely devastated that I wasn't allowed to watch it at, at school. I was told by my by my boarding master you can't watch it um like but, but my parents allow me to um which probably tells you more about my parents than it does does anything else um i have to say that i really enjoyed sharp growing up and it brought on my reading like like nothing else because i wanted to know what all these words were and it was fantastic but it gave me such a warped perspective and i think i can't forgive Bernard Cornwell for that. No matter how good the books are in terms of just being able to pick up and read them, they gave me a massively, as I say, warped perspective on 
what the age of what warfare was like in that in that period what people were like in that period and what was acceptable what was not and just the whole history reality of it became so distorted by comparing now to um people like adrian goldsworthy who's written a very short and he's actually discontinued it now but but series of books on the community of war and adrian goldsworthy's come from a historian perspective and he's actually tried to be more nuanced and he's and he's tried to add in those things which which bernard cornwell has missed um but if i'm going to be perfectly honest the one thing I cannot forgive Bernard Cornwell for is filling Sandhurst with a bunch of Richard Sharp wannabes who all turn up on day one. What cat badge are you going for? Rifles. No, no, I'm sorry. It's not like that. That's not reality. Um, so, yeah, he misses the drudgery for me and, and that needs to come out. I will, I will counter that with, uh, you know, something the army does very well is PR. And something the Navy does really badly is PR. And when the Rifle Regiment was formed, I remember I was a young cadet um, and we were Devon and Dorset, and we became Rifles and seeing the website change for the banner of Sharp, which somebody had cleverly edited in modern weapons into, and it said, join the Rifles, become a chosen man. And the strength of the Rifle Regiment today without getting into it is it's one of the only regiments that under the last review Oh, sorry, previous review before that, is expanding because its recruitment is so strong and they have an identity of riflemen first, you know, officer second or riflemen first, old county regiment second. So the, it, it clearly can work. Um, yes, um, to the Sandhurst uh, segment, uh, but then I'm a, I'm a scum of the earth, not, a, uh, not on the other side. However, I do think that, you know, the army has grasped it, steered into the skid, basically, and it has been a really big success story to the rifles. You know, the swift and bold motto is repeated all the time when you see the 95th rifles. And that was the motto of the Kings of Rifle Corps, which were the, the fifth, 60th. So the, the history often needs a little bit of untangling, but Bernard Cornwell is probably always going to be welcome in the rifles mess. Sure, being is. <laughs> this is true. Um, we have managed to skip over uh, Marx's attempt to uh, do the, the Bernard, uh, sorry, the, the Sean Bean um, catchphrase bastard. Um, anyway, Rachel, I, I want to come to you to, to wrap up our, our coverage of Sharp, which um, has seemed to have gone on for some time, but I, I guess it's perhaps inevitable seeing as we're all kind of pulling it apart and loving to hate it, but hating to love it or some mixed metaphor there. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I have I have mixed feelings about Sharp now. I I have a real fondness for it because it is how I came to the period and it is how I got obsessed with the Duke of Wellington and then went on to read his various biographies and stuff like that. So I owe Sharp quite a lot and I do like the TV series as well. Um, it, it is really enjoyable. I feel like sometimes it, the TV series adds more depth to the supporting characters. Um, you guys have covered a lot of the stuff I want to raise about Sharp. It is formulaic in the extreme. It is almost fiction by numbers because here's the objective, here's the mission, here's the sort of nefarious upper class officer who's going to sneer at Sharp, and you know here's a little cameo by Wellington, and it goes on and on. And it, I did read a quote. Um, it was admittedly on the Aubrey Maturin Society page, so coming in with a little bit of bias, whereas somebody said if you've if you've read one sharp book you kind of could 
predict how most of them will go. And once you've read them once, you're not going to find anything new in a chart book for a reread. You're going to enjoy it. It's it's well paced, but you're not necessarily going to find anything new, any new nuances to pick out of it. And it is it isn't nuanced writing. Of the options we're speaking about tonight, I would say probably sharp lacks depth the most. Um, I have a huge problem now with how he writes women. I didn't pick it up in my teens. I really enjoyed the books in my teens, but rereading them as an adult, I have such a huge problem with how he writes women. And it is sort of comparative to Game of Thrones in that you've got half the time the women, they serve no narrative purpose. I like Teresa. I think Teresa is an excellent character. Josephina has a has value and she's part of Sharp's story. But particularly in the shoehorn ones, you, you know, Mary Bickerstaff in the first one, Simone, uh, Lady Grace, um, what's she called in Copenhagen, again, Astrid, they, they really very often don't serve a plot purpose. They're there effectively to say, look, here's the narrative and here's a nice pair of breasts, just in case I'm not holding your attention <laughs> and move on from there. And I really have an issue with women characters being written in that way. Because I feel if you're going to argue for a great novel, and they are all great in their own separate way, but if you're going to be a great writer, you should be able to write women as rational, believable human beings and not just somebody there to, to entertain or as a reward. I was checking the, the, I knew it was in one of the books, I was looking at it, it's in the foreword to Sharp, what have we got, Sharp, Sword, um, where he talks about the Marquesa and he talks a little bit about, you know, Sharp's romantic life. And he, he literally says, she's a reward for Sharp. So not a plot purpose, not a female character, not something that's driving the, the story arc or a different perspective. She's there for Sharp to bonk, basically. And I, I really struggle with that because you should be able to write characters with just marginally more depth than that. And I feel the same sometimes about some of the riflemen. I think if you take... I love Harper. Harper's one of my favourite fictional characters ever. Take Harper out and Hagman, and I feel like you can summarise all the other riflemen with one sentence. Harris can read. Pendleton's the baby. Isaiah Tongue admires Napoleon. Slattery is Irish. And you can, there's very little depth to most of them. You can just sum up their characters basically that way. And it's the same with quite a lot, I feel, of the the supporting characters. Um, I, Hogan's very well done, and I think he does Wellington very well as well. But for a lot of the characters, you could sum them up with a sentence. And it is about Sharp, but it feels like it lacks that sort of literary depth for me. And again, I'm sorry, I really do sound like a book snob, but that's my one of the major sticking points I have with Sharp, um, Sharp Knight. And I think Bernard Cornwell wrote a magnificent villain in Obadiah Hakeswell and a really unique villain and something that's not, it, you don't really see it's like in many other historical fiction series. But I feel like some of the other villains, particularly the French ones, stream a little bit close to panto villainy. It's like moustache twirling, wahaha, we must sort of cause Sharp's downfall. And it's sort of, yeah, it, it for me, it kind of lacks in those departments where I feel you know, O'Brien, Tolstoy, and Hornblower to a degree as well, they've they've got a bit more plausibility in terms of the the villains. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm fond of Sharp. I genuinely am. I that probably sounds like I've been really derogatory, but in terms of are they pacey? Yes. Are they accessible? Definitely yes. Are they a good starting point for the period? Absolutely. Are they great novels? 
mm, I'm not so sure. Good entertaining novels, but I'd struggle to describe them as great. Yes, there's a huge fandom, undeniably. And if you're gonna read sharp, uh, sharp fan fiction, look up Sharp Hardy. If you can bear to see the series sort of lovingly sent up, it's very entertaining. Um, but if we're gonna take fandoms alone as proof of greatness, that would effectively mean Twilight was better than all of the books we're talking about tonight. So I'm not sure you can, you can use fandom as a, as a scoring point, but yeah, good books, yes. I'd struggle to classify them as great though. I mean, I visibly recoiled at the mention of Twilight there, um, which <laughs> tells you a lot about what I, I think about that. Uh, thank you, Rachel, a tour de force on, on summing us up. Yeah, I think all of us are kind of turning around and saying the same kind of thing, aren't we? That particularly when it comes to the portrayal of women um, and, and the depth of other characters as well, there are, there's a, there's a lot that's yeah. to be desired. It was, it's like, it, it one thing and it's the only thing, and I think it's defence there, Rachel, that you rightly brought up is his character of Hakeswell is a fantastic piece of writing. But in, in Bernard Cornwell, in an interview I recently read, said his biggest literary regret is that he killed him off because he is a fantastic character um and he kind of you know just kind of transcends that with Pete Possilwaite's performance it's just was probably one of the best bits of acting and casting in the whole thing Hogan was great but yeah we keep coming back to having problems with women and as you were talking I'm trying to think of you know I've read quite a few of his other books um there are some good Bernard Cornwell female characters in Excalibur his series um, but then not so much in the Archer series. The Excalibur series that he does, he does do some good female characters. However, you know, you have to think of them, you have to find them, uh, which in itself is the problem. You know, I'm struggling to think back and find the good, there's Teresa, there's Excalibur series. And that is a problem. I, I would love to be proven so wrong and for Bernard Cornwell to come out and write a, a book with a female lead that would make my day. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm gonna definitely gonna read Sharp's Assassin. I'm definitely gonna shout about it. Um, but I, yeah, I totally, that is, that's, it's, that's its flaw, but it's always going to be one of the biggest names in Napoleonic Warfare. And I've seen people recently, Charles Esdale, for example, try to say how much he dislikes it effectively uh, for the over-popularizing uh, the Napoleonic War and bringing too many myths. And seeing, and I, I almost uh, apologised to him afterwards, seeing the fans come out and <laughs> attack him, even from the academic world and from our lovely corner on Twitter, because it is such a popular series uh, for many different reasons. So, um, yeah, I think, but as, you know, society progresses effectively, I think it is right to highlight its flaws. It'll be interesting to see what he does with Sharp's Assassin, actually, because obviously mm -hmm. Sharp's supposed to be settled and happy because it's it's set after waterloo isn't it Church yeah it's going to start on the um 19th of june and yeah in, so he's... The, in the books he's well not married because he hasn't been able to get a divorce but he is settled with lucille yeah, living yeah. in normandy um so yeah how yeah if he cheats on her if it turns into a bodice ripper might be a little bit disappointing yeah because obviously he cheats on Teresa and It'll be, yeah, it'll be interesting because he's supposed to have his happily ever after and as much as Sharp can. So, yeah, I hope he doesn't go and spoil it. Let's hope it's still to a Waterloo banquet. That's all I say. Yeah, yeah more Wellington. So That's definitely good. Absolutely. It's sort of a crowbar of a crowbar, though, isn't it? Because there are the sequel novels 
where we know that there's this happily ever after, except that it's not because Shark can't have a happily ever after. Um, but then he's kind of squeezed this in around the Battle of Paris. Um, so yeah, interesting. Folks, this has been a killer episode. Just very, very quickly, I want to go around the room and do honourable mentions. So if you weren't having yours or any of the others that are on offer tonight, who would you go for? I'm going to kick things off and quite simply say Lynn Bryant's novels um, are just brilliant and, and offer a depth of female characters that we don't see in um, Sharp. In my opinion, I don't think people are aware enough about those novels. They come in various um, guises. So you've got a, a Manxman series. You've also got one that's based around uh, Paul Van Damme and his um, leadership of a regiment and later a brigade. I'm also ever so slightly biased because there is um, a provost marshal in there by the name of Captain Zachariah White, um, who is 100% um, a connection to me. Um, and I'm not even sorry, <laughs> as Marcus buries his head in his hands at the, the shameless name drop there. Um, but I, look, setting that tongue-in-cheek comment aside, they are brilliant novels and I would strongly urge people to have a read of them. Let's now go around the room. Um, Marcus, let's come to you first. Well, surely it's C.S. Forrester, Death to the French, though. I would say Rifleman Dodd, a.k.a. Death to the French, is a fantastic short uh, Napoleonic novel. Okay, doke. I'm going to make this super quick and, and literally just keep cycling through. Gavin, what about you? I'd probably agree with um, what you said earlier with the, about the uh, Adrian Goldsworthy novels. Brilliant. Andy? Um, that's that's where I was going to go as a foil to Sharp. If you want something that's a bit more more thoughtful, a bit more rounded, I'd, I'd go for those. And Rachel, what about you? Make it three. That's what I was going to go for as well. Yeah. <laughs> oh wow, harmony at the end of the episode. Although we have been ish harmonious tonight. I mean, we've we've given you, you some hard times, each of you, um, about your your chosen novels. But this has been an absolute killer of an episode. I've had enormous fun. Thank you all. Gavin, Marcus, Andy and Rachel, so, so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. That was Rachel Stark, Gavin Lewis, Andy Young and Marcus Cribb joining me to discuss the greatest book on the Napoleonic era. You can find them on Twitter respectively at BookishRachel, at GLewis92, at strategy for war one that's one as a number, and at History. If you've been inspired to read the titles mentioned in this podcast, don't rush off to Amazon. I have an alternative suggestion. Why not support independent bookstores and your boy producing this podcast by buying them via the Napoleonicist bookshop? Click the link in the description and you'll find a list dedicated to novels of the period, where you can find a vast range of titles. And in the process, the independent booksellers will get a cut and the Napoleonicist gets a separate cut. So there are many benefits, and they're all put together into a specific list to make them nice and easy to navigate. I'm always thanking my brilliant Patreon supporters, but I have good news for those who don't want to make a regular contribution, but who do want to leave a one-off tip. You can now tip the Napoleon Assist at Kofi. The link is in the description. And know in advance that your generosity, whatever the size of the tip, is hugely appreciated. And of course... No episode would be complete without a shout out to my wonderful Patreon supporters who keep the podcast going through their subscriptions. There are some exclusive perks, including a discount code at Pen and Sword Books, 
which effectively means that you can quite quickly recoup some of what you're investing into this podcast. So be sure to check the link in the description for details. A particular thanks to my commander patron, Ger Brown, and my mentioned in dispatches patrons, Alexandra Leon, Josh Keeney, Gareth Copeland, Ross Flowers, Jim Deary, Lucy Tatner, James Bevan, Roy Muir, Jamie Kingston, Lynn Dawson, Beatrice de Graff, Anna Vakulenko, John Haynes, Brendan Teeling, an anonymous Canadian, Alex Churchill, and Rob Griffith. Join me in a fortnight when I'll be kicking off another themed month, the first to actually be voted for by my Commander patrons, which will focus on the Duke of Wellington. Until then, I'm Zach White, this has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care of yourselves, my friends, stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening.